0: Welcome to the Cynical Podcast, the weekly discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with SupChina. SubChina is simply the best way there is to keep on top of all the news coming out of China, especially if you subscribe to our email newsletter, SubChina Access. And check out subchina.com for a wide range of reported stories, columns, op-eds, videos, and, of course, podcasts. It's a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. I'm Kaiser Guo and I am coming to you today from Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Many of us who study China and Asia and who've watched in horror or disgust as the Trump administration cast aside the norms and forms of diplomacy, imperiled longstanding alliances, and engaged in all sorts of gratuitous insults and provocations of Beijing, especially in the final year of the presidency, uh, were, were naturally relieved by the results of last month's US presidential election. But things haven't stood still in the region while well, Everyone awaits Inauguration Day. On November 15th, just a little over a week after the presidential race's outcome became manifestly clear, the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership, or RCEP, agreement was signed in a virtual summit hosted by Vietnam, creating the largest trade bloc in history. Uh, The 15-member agreement includes all 10 members of ASEAN, plus the three largest economies in Asia, China, Japan, and South Korea talk of the significance of RCEP and the conspicuous fact that the United States is a member of neither of the major regional trade agreements, the other, of course, being the CPTPP, naturally caught the attention of my guest today, Evan Feigenbaum, who promptly tweeted out a thread that was just packed with all sorts of ideas that he's been brewing over the last decade or so, ideas about how the security and economic relationships have evolved, about the realities of economic integration in Asia and the resultant threat of, you know, marginalization of the U.S. as an economic actor in the region, and about the dangers of viewing everything in Asia through the singular lens of China. As soon as I read it, I reached out because Evan is, by my lights, one of the most penetrating, original, and insightful thinkers looking at the U.S. role in Asia. Uh, Somebody whose breadth of experience in and uh, deep knowledge of the region have just for a very long time made him Somebody who to whom I, I turn regularly for smart perspectives. Uh, and with a new administration coming in and a foreign policy team already shaping up, I thought Evan would have quite a bit to say. Evan Feigenbaum is... Vice President for Studies at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, where he oversees research in Washington, Beijing, and New Delhi on a dynamic region encompassing both East Asia and South Asia. He served as Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for South and Central Asian Affairs under Condi Rice during the second Bush 43 administration, uh, and as Vice Chairman of the Paulson Institute before joining Carnegie. He's also just a hell of a chef whose Facebook posts on on his uh, lockdown cooking have been a real inspiration to me. It's been many years now since we've had you on the show. Evan, uh, welcome back to Seneca.
1: Thanks for having me. I just wish we weren't stuck at home with the pandemic and we could uh, open that restaurant because we've talked about all
0: this time. Yeah, man, that'd be great. We'd have all the policy wonks uh, come dine with us. Uh, Let's start, though, with some of the really big picture stuff that I I think you captured so well. not just in your tweets, but in, in, the, in the pieces that you link to the major trends that, that form the context to recent events like, you know, the sighting of RCEP. So in a recent Carnegie podcast that you did uh, called, what was it called? Grand, Ta- I'm sorry. Grand, Tam- Grand Tamasha. Grand Tamasha. What is that? What does Grand Tamasha mean?
1: It's like a grand occasion, grand affair. Uh, uh, it's okay. a kind of in Indian phrase. It's okay. a it's a it's a podcast between Cordigan and the Hindustan Times that's hosted by my colleague Milan Vaishnav.
0: Uh, anyway, it was a fantastic uh interview that you did there. Uh but you laid out what I thought was a pretty counterintuitive account of, of how security and economic relationships between China and the U.S. Uh, these two parallel tracks have have evolved in in the nearly you know last half century. Uh, you make the case that actually closer economic integration between the U.S. and China, through as you put it, the exchange of goods, capital, people, technology, and data, has actually resulted, ironically, in in the situation that we're in, uh, where the whole economic relationship has become you know, one that we constantly lens through national security. So take us through that argument because I think it's fascinating. And and once I understood it, it made a whole lot of sense to me. But like I said, it's kind of counterintuitive and maybe take it slow because it's not a simple assertion. Sure. Well, the core of it
1: is what I've called the secured of the U.S.-China relationship, and in particular, mm-hmm. the securitization of commercial flows, which is to say the refracting of commercial exchanges of goods, capital, people, technology, and data, as you said, through the rather zero-summy prism of... National security imperatives rather than the kind of public goods view of uh, commercial interaction. Mm. And to understand why that's a big change, I think it's actually useful to go back to the inception of the US China relationship, which in the modern era was Richard Nixon's 1972 visit to Beijing. And if you think about it, at that point in time, the US and China were fighting a proxy war in Vietnam. China was still crawling out of the Cultural Revolution. So from the very inception, they were beset with clashing security concepts and obvious differences of political system and ideology. These things were a feature. They weren't really a bug of the U.S.-China relationship. But once they began to exchange, as you said, goods, capital, people, technology, and data on a large scale, and especially after China went in the World Trade Organization in 2001, you had economics and security largely running on parallel tracks. They were always there, but they were in the background and they didn't really impinge on financial markets or on business models that people had for doing business in China. And so the conclusion I think that a lot of people reached was essentially that economic integration would either just sit out in the background separate from the security issues or even that it would mitigate the security competition but the fact of the matter is that hasn't that hasn't happened right right really at all security tensions getting worse uh, from the South China Sea to the Taiwan Strait and now and this is the key point um, those flows of capital people technology and data are being refracted as the security issues bleed back and so you know you can see that happening you know just take something like flows of technology. Technology is especially vulnerable, I think, to security thinking because of how the flow of innovations has really changed. You know, if you think about technology from, say, the 1940s to the 1960s, military innovation was enabling a lot of commercial innovation. And so out of the war babies like American atomic energy or computing or British radar or German rocketry came a lot of commercial innovations. By the 1960s, that had reversed where commercial microelectronics and semiconductors were creating spin-on innovations for weapons. Huh. But if you project forward and you look at emerging and foundational technologies of the future, whether it's AI-enabled applications or it's new synthetic and composite materials, these things are really multiple use. And so they change the future of work and industry, but they also change the future of defense. And what that means is people increasingly view co-innovation partnerships or technology collaborations between the United States and China through a security prism. And they can't really be separated anymore. And I think that's true both on the US side and on the Chinese side. And that's really a wholesale change that Um, I call securitization. And I think it's going to be very hard to get out from under. I don't see it reversing anytime soon.
0: Right, right, right. Uh, So, you know, the securitization that you've talked about is something that has its roots, like you said, back in the 70s. Uh, There's also another thing happening, economic integration in the region itself. Uh, And China, of course, playing a more and more central role in uh, the economic integration of the region. That has created a situation where the U.S., is standing increasingly on just one of the two legs I mean we might think of those two tracks as also two legs that, that there there's always been as you've you 've pointed out uh a security dimension to it, but there's also been you know the u s as an economic actor in the region so as as china 's role in trade and investment has expanded in the region um, i mean i 'm'm talking about even pre belt and road where you know chinese money chinese uh engineering know how and whatever have have helped to knit the region together, also Chinese demand. Um, the U.S. is waning in its relative economic influence. Uh, You put it really colorfully. You said that that America... Is now in sort of in danger of becoming the Hessians of Asia. <laughs> I thought that was great. I mean, because you know, usually when I heard Hessians growing up, it was referring to the likes of me, you know, the long-haired stoners. <laughs> but uh, but, <laughs> but that's not
1: that's not the Hessians that I meant. <laughs> I know, I know.
0: That's funny, but uh, so the Hessians. Um, this wasn't preordained. You've argued. I mean, we actually have made mistakes though. That we've we've abdicated responsibilities. We've passed up opportunities. Um, but it was also, I guess, inevitable that the U.S. would be taking uh, a less central role in the region as the region got more economically integrated. Can, can you talk about what was and wasn't avoidable and uh, where you think we went wrong, maybe both conceptually and strategically, you know, that now has put us in danger of becoming the Hessians, us Americans, as becoming the Hessians of Asia?
1: Well, first, I mean, American leadership in East Asia and the Pacific had a security pillar and an economic pillar. So the United States was the security leader because it provided security-related public goods that kept the peace in the region. Its alliances, its forward-deployed military presence, carrier battle groups, all the things that most countries in the region, with the exception of China, relied on to provide security and stability. But that wasn't the end of the story. The United States was also an economic public goods provider because it was the demand for which Asia's export-led economies power their way to prosperity. And it was the leader on regional and global trade liberalization and standard setting. And so what I worry about is that the U.S. is fading as a demand driver, Um, and if it doesn't want to end up just as a security provider, it needs to therefore double down on its role as a rule setter, norm setter, standard setter. But if you look at everything from trade agreements to technical standards, the United States is receding from that role. That's why something like withdrawal from the now- called Comprehensive and Progressive Trans-Pacific Partnership really was important because it leaves the United States standing more and more on the security pillar and less on the economic. Now, you raised the question of whether that was inevitable. I mean, it was inevitable that the United States would recede economically in relative terms. But what wasn't inevitable was that the United States would be mostly unadaptive and spend most of its strategic effort either with its head sitting in the sand or else trying to rewind the clock back to an Asia that's never going to return. So you can't wish a away the scope and scale of change, particularly since the global financial crisis. But you can not adapt to a change. And that's what I worry about. I don't see it happening. And it's partly because I think the United States has a poor sense of history. There was a huge change in Asia in this key decade between the Asian financial crisis in 1997-98 and then the global financial crisis in 2008. The first of those, 1997-98, was important because it led to pan-Asian arrangements, trade deals, swap arrangements. It was the moment when Asian countries began to look to one another and not to the United States and its preferred institutions and solutions for answers to the problems that bedeviled the region. You remember the United States bailed out Mexico in
0: 1994. But we didn't bail refused, out Thailand. Right. Refused to
1: bail out Thailand three years later. So that was the moment when the United States not didn't begin to recede in business terms, but where a lot of the incipient Pan-Asianism that we see today uh, really originated. And you know, these days when you hear people talk about it, they, they finger China. China as the culprit. They confuse pan-Asianism with something that's Sinocentric. But back in those days, it was Japan, a country that's a close American ally and has a strong sense of trans-Pacific identity, that was driving all sorts of ideas like Asian monetary integration, for example. So that was a critical moment. The other inflection point was 2008, because it really scrambled economic relationships between China and the rest of the world. So today, instead of just being producers and exporters, Asians are consumers, and they're also importers, and their capital- providers, including to one another, rather than just capital recipients from the United States and the transatlantic West. So the reality is that economic integration is making Asia more Asian and less Pacific, without it necessarily becoming the Sinocentric region that the United States is worried about. And so the question that the United States faces and that the Biden team is going to face, if indeed it thinks that American presence is necessary to protect American interest, is how to adapt American strategy to that vastly changed region on the economic side, rather than fantasizing some impossible rewind back to an Asia who's defining characteristic was that the United States was the central player in both the security and the economic realms. So that's what I worry about. And my own view is that the US just needs to be a multidimensional power that leverages its strengths in a much more adaptive way. And what I see happening is the United States that's much more focused on security rebalancing against China to the exclusion of the kind of economic rebalancing to this region that is emerging. And the United States really just needs to raise its game.
0: Well we'll play play that out. What happens if the United States doesn't you know uh sort of reestablish itself as a multi-dimensional player in the region and just has that sort of one dimensional uh, aspect to its power that is just as a security provider, just as the hessians uh, What does that then look like?
1: Well, I mean, for one thing, the United States will miss opportunities in the region over time. I mean, this isn't about business. It's about strategic momentum and standard setting. American business can adapt to anybody's rules. Right. And, you know, you often hear Wilbur Ross or Mike Pompeo or Robert O'Brien, the senior officials in the Trump administration, point to the scope and scale of American investment in the region, and they'll you know, say that's a function of American national security policy, or American interest presence and posture. I don't think that's the case. I think American business can adapt to all sorts of rules. But the US does have an interest in being a standard setter. And what it may find over time is that when the standards are set by others, American business will get locked out in time. So that's one problem with it. A second is that just in terms of strategic momentum, you don't want the United States perceived as the spoiler in the region. And I think for third countries uh, in Asia, increasingly, the United States China, or both of them, are viewed as the spoilers of meaningful collective action on a whole variety of economic or public health issues. And as an American, I just don't think that's a good place for the United States to be positioned. And over the long term, if you pull the threat out 15, 20 years, the real danger is irrelevance, that the United States basically fades from the region. In a wholesale way, not just in a retail way, on on individual and discrete issues, Uh, and you know, just given the centrality of the Pacific to American interests, I just, I just, uh, I don't think that's a good place for the United States to be positioned.
0: You've already started describing the United States as being—I mean, this is—I'm quoting you—you call us diplomatically challenged and commercially irrelevant in about two-thirds of the Eurasian landmass. I mean, that's clear enough after four years of Trump, but. I, I suspect you think that we were already on the wrong trajectory before that. Uh, is is that correct?
1: Yeah, I mean, I I think. You know, frankly, the U.S. has been out to lunch on the integration of Asia for a long time. I mean, the United States essentially has had three separate foreign policies for Asia. It's had one for East Asia that's increasingly focused on security balancing against China. It had one for South Asia that was, in my view, overly focused on the India-Pakistan dynamic
0: Mm -hmm. rather
1: than on India in its larger region. And then it had a third policy for Central Asia, which it didn't really regard as part of Asia at all. That was kind of Russia.
0: Russian Um, backyard. And so,
1: yeah, and so the more integrated the region becomes, which is really closer to the historical norm, rather than to the Cold War anomaly of American dominance and separate and fragmented regions, the less central the United States is, and therefore the more the United States has to leverage its unique strengths, rather than doing what I think it's doing, which is trying to... uh, you know, do apples to apples competitive comparisons with China, for example, uh, as it tries to keep itself relevant in this changing region. I'll tell you why that's important. Because essentially, the United States says it's competing with China, but it's fighting the map. It's fighting economic gravity.
0: And it's setting
1: the bar of expectations for the partners that it seeks in the wrong place. Why is it fighting the map? It's fighting the map, because in a more integrated Asia, the fact is, China is the only country that's geographically contiguous to every subregion of Asia. If You just right. walk around the map in your head, right? China's contiguous to Northeast Asia, Southeast Asia, South Asia, Central Asia. And so China can leverage the map in ways that the United States can't. You can build a highway from Pakistan to Western China, you can't build a bridge from Kazakhstan to California. So when Secretary of State Pompeo goes around the region trashing Chinese infrastructure initiatives like the Belt and Road, he's doing it at a time when the United States has no comparable ability to offer an apples to apples alternative. So
0: right. that's one
1: problem with a more integrated region. Then there's economic gravity, which is in that space, China just bulks larger in two thirds of the Eurasian landmass as a trader, a builder, a lender. And so do other Asian countries too. Japan is the major infrastructure structure investor in both Southeast Asia and in India, for instance. So when the U.S. filters these objective realities, the map and gravity, through this strategic prism that doesn't really reflect the new map and the new economic geography of the region, you end up with American messaging that persistently tells Asian players to fight these things. And to make that real for you, just look at Mike Pompeo. He's had three visits to Asia this year. He went to Central Asia. He went to South Asia. He went to uh, Southeast Asia, including a recent trip to Indonesia. And on all of those trips, he elected mostly not to emphasize America initiatives, but instead to trash talk the Chinese competition. And that's just not very realistic for an Uzbekistan or for a Sri Lanka or even for an Indonesia. And so, you know, what you have is uh, the United States turning upside down a famous aphorism that my former boss at the State Department, Richard Armitage, used to say, which is to get China policy right, you need to get Asia policy right. Instead, they're refracting Asia policy through the prism of this set of bilateral concerns with China. And that's one thing in a fragmented region, but in a more integrated region where the United States just bulks less central, uh, that's a harder thing to do. And so you end up with setting the bar at a place that's just not realistic for countries that you're trying to rally or that you're seeking partners with.
0: There's lot, lots of manifestations of this signification of everything, as, as you've called it. Uh, one really great argument that you make uh, as to why – okay, so you know you, you talked about the centrality of, of America as a rulemaker, as a standard setter, and how important that ought to be. Um, Obama, though, you, you suggest, got it wrong. He was pushing TPP. He was selling you know, uh, the Trans-Pacific Partnership uh, and suggesting that if the United States doesn't write the rules in the Western Pacific and in Asia – then China will write the rules in the region, but you actually I offered I thought it was, I think, a pretty fantastically compelling counter argument to that, which is, well, just look what actually happened. You know, during the Trump administration, the United States withdrew from TPP. and, and, and what happened? It's not like China then stepped in and started writing rules, right? Could you, could you spell out what it is? What, what do we miss when we draw this sort of false binary between U.S. rules and Chinese rules? Well, basically, we miss the way the region is actually
1: evolving rather than the the region of our fantasies. It's true that the United States and China are competing directly to set Asia's rules, norms and standards. But meanwhile, even as they're both doing that... Other countries in the region are increasingly choosing to shape the future themselves. And right now, I think these third countries increasingly, as I said to you earlier, view Washington or Beijing or both of them as the spoilers of meaningful collective action. And so what they're doing is they're stepping into the breach by coordinating and cooperating themselves. So let me give you three examples of that. One is trade. Mm -hmm. The second is data. And the third is infrastructure, right? On trade, as you said, when you cited the way I've talked about this, Uh, you know, Barack Obama's basic warning about the Trans-Pacific, which he did partly for domestic effect, was bipolar. He said, if the United States doesn't write the rules, China will write the rules. And so if that had been true, when President Trump withdrew the United States from the TPP. What should have happened, right? China should have come in and become the rule writer for the region. It's that bipolar view of Asia's future. But that's not what happened. Instead, you ended up with 11 countries completing the agreement and with neither China nor the United States in the room. So my supposition is that that's happened in the trade space, but it could become a model in other areas because Asia has capable, sizable, and self-interested players uh, that don't necessarily want to be caught betwixt and between Washington and Beijing. And so that's starting to play out in some other areas where you either have third players driving the play or you just have fragmentation and no one set of rules that's going to prevail, and certainly not an American or a Chinese version. So on data, you just have straight up fragmentation. Japan pushed a cross-border data access and transfer initiative called the Osaka Initiative, under Prime right. Minister Abe, but India and Indonesia, which the United States sees as like minded with it and Japan, declined to sign up. Um, Then you've got India's own domestic data regime, which looks a little bit like China on localization requirements. China's standing apart. The U.S. and the Europeans are in another place with Europe's GDPR. And so data is just completely fragmented, and it's neither American nor Chinese rules. And then on infrastructure, the U.S. is very focused on the Belt and Road. But the reality is there's not just Chinese, but Japanese, Korean, Singaporean, European money flowing around the region looking to finance projects, looking for yield. All the big project finance in India is not China. Chinese. It's Japanese. Mm -hmm. Delhi, Metro, Mumbai, Delhi Industrial Corridor, Central Asia, there's plenty of international financial institutions, money floating around. There's Singaporean money in India. So the point is, you're either going to get fragmentation or you're going to get a lot of sizable, capable and self-interested players driving things. But the United States refracts everything through this Obama-like prism that the future of the region is either ours to win, or it's China's to win. And I think that's the dominant narrative here. And frankly, it's the dominant narrative in Beijing. But third country, aren't going to stand for it. And so I just see the region as increasingly being defined by fragmentation, a patchwork of rules, discombobulated coalitions, and function driving form rather than the other way around, which is the way it works in a more block-like Cold War setup. You, right. You know, you create your blocks, and then you, they apply the block-like arrangements to the function. That's just not the reality of Asia. Today. So, I mean,
0: do you think that this was the, the same kind of flawed thinking that drove the idea of the rebalancing or, or the pivot, as it was originally called? I mean, was it was that its sort of original sin, its conceptual flaw, or do you think that it was you know a failure because it was just badly packaged, badly marketed, or you know that it didn't adapt to a, a quickly changing situation on the ground? What do you think it was? I
1: wouldn't. I wouldn't say the idea of a pivot is a failure. I mean, you have had multiple administrations now that have appreciated the importance of Asia to America's interests and America's future. Um, so I don't see the pivot necessarily as disruptive in the way that it was marketed. I think if you go back to the administration I served in, the George W. Bush administration, there were already things happening that were rebalancing American emphasis toward Asia. One example, very mundane one, um, I was the first deputy assistant secretary of state for Central Asia that had a predominantly China-focused background, not a Russia-centric background. And that's because as my boss, Condi Rice, the secretary of state, said to me, she wanted me to help put the Asia back in Central Central Asia. Asia. So that in a sense, yeah, so that in a sense is part of a rebalance. I think the problem is that um first it presumed the United States could just, you know, discard other regions of the world as it rebalanced to Asia. And the United States doesn't have the luxury of a one region foreign policy. It's just unrealistic that the United States is going to get pulled away from other parts of the world. The US has global interests. It can change its posture in the Middle East, but the United States keeps getting sucked back into the Middle East and it will continue to be. Um it has you know, a multi-dimensional set of policies and it doesn't have the luxury of just thinking in terms of one region. It's not a regional player. I think the second issue is the, the, the trade space. Um, you know, at the retail level, both parties, in a sense, have become anti trade parties and right. have found it hard to sell large pacts and agreements. And so I always viewed the way people talked about the rebalance or the pivot as somewhat security centric. But the business of Asia is business. And so I think the U.S. has to figure out how to navigate that, or else you have a rebalance that's largely empty. Um, and when there I've, are left, sec-
0: I've tried to, I've talked to, to, so I've talked to both Kurt Campbell and and Danny Russell about uh, about the pivot, and you know they've both definitely tried to emphasize that it was supposed to be it was conceived of as primarily economic, uh, and that that somehow it was it was interpreted as sort of more of a security pivot. Uh, but you you agree? I mean, you were you know watching very carefully. Is this was it in indeed intended to be in a primarily economic uh, maneuver?
1: I don't see it that way. Um, And I think you can just look at where we've ended up, which goes back to the discussion we were just having. Um, You know, the reality is trade and investment norms and standards are going to be set by two agreements the CPTPP, and the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership, uh, and the United States is not part of either one of them. And by the way, India is not part of either one of them either. So for all the talk about an Indo-Pacific, what is an Indo-Pacific in the economic space when the largest economy in the Indo and the largest economy across the Pacific are not part of it? So whatever the intent was, I mean, I think the reality is this is where we've ended up. And frankly, as we were just saying, the region was already becoming less American-centric and more asian you know, even if you rewind the clock back to 1997. So I think that's the problem is the U.S. has to be more adaptive uh, and less focused on clock rewinding to a region that isn't coming back. But I don't think the basic idea of it was wrong. And I think that's had some continuity across administrations on a bipartisan basis. I also think there's a security component, which is, is the U.S. prepared to invest in the kinds of force investments in terms of weapons platforms, but also in alliances, and security partnerships in uh, a way that would make them sustainable for the long term. And one problem the Trump administration has had, frankly, is the president's frequent nasty grams that he's directed (laughs) at allies, the constant talk about withdrawing U.S. forces, which, as I've said elsewhere, had kind of Carter-esque overtones that reminded people in the region of the somewhat haphazard way in which the Carter administration talked about drawing down U.S. forces in the 1970s. So the Biden team does have an opportunity for a reset on that, which is to um, manage the positive aspects of what the Trump team did on the security posture, but in a more systematic, institutionalized, and less ad hoc way.
0: But the uh, the strategic thinking class in the United States just doesn't seem to have really woken up to this new reality. What do you think is is the reason for this? What what lies behind this inability to to uh, grasp the situation as it is and to continue to pine for an Asia that used to be or in, in Asia of their imagining?
1: What is the strategic class kind of getting? Why are we...
0: Yeah, I mean, what's what's preventing them from understanding what you're saying here, which makes perfect sense to me, and, you know, as not part of that class?
1: Well, I think, you know, I think, frankly, that, uh, you know, less complex and less multidimensional narratives are easier. So I, I think there's been a tendency to default to a a simpler prism for looking at regions that are evolving very rapidly. I think the United States, frankly, is having trouble grappling with the change in its own centrality. Uh, around the world. And when I say that, I do not mean decline. In fact, I'm not only not a declinist, I, I reject wholesale those who think the United States is declining. The United States has more to offer in terms of leveraging its strengths. You know, world-class financial services firms, best-in-class science, technology, engineering, and mathematics, uh, connections to the global capital markets, preponderant voting weight between itself and its allies like Japan and the European Union, countries in major international financial institutions. It's just not leveraging, those as effectively as it could and should. And so if you go back to how we talked about the Belt and Road before, that's what I mean. Um, I think the United States is thinking in terms of... a uh, a less complex narrative in which it has to match China dollar for dollar, initiative for initiative. And that doesn't play to American strength, that it also sets the bar in a place that's not very realistic. And so not surprisingly, the United States isn't succeeding in that competition. But succeeding at strategic competition means leveraging what you can bring to the table in a much more effective way. So um, so, so I think that's, that's what the strategic class isn't entirely getting. And I think particularly the... The knitting together of the security issues and the economic issues, and the the way that this is not wholly a security-related competition, but has economic and, frankly, also political and ideological dimensions, that that hasn't been knitted together well in American strategy.
0: But even people who get it, uh, I mean, I feel like they're they're fettered uh, considerably by American domestic politics. I mean, we talked about how it's been a very very hard thing to sell for a long time. Um, you know, it's something like TPP. Uh, even Hillary had to disavow the TPP during, you know, the 2016 race. Uh, I feel like having constantly to to look to domestic politics really inhibits the ability of American strategic thinkers. Uh, is that is that your sense at all? Well, but it's inevitable. I mean,
1: you know, uh, former Secretary of State James Baker wrote a terrific memoir of his time at the State Department. And the title of the book was The Politics of Diplomacy, because he understood very well that if you didn't anchor your foreign policy in a firm national security consensus, it just wasn't sustainable. And so I think you know that is a challenge because our politics have become very uh, fractious on everything. And it is true that on some foreign policy issues, for example, American policy toward China, there is a growing cross-party consensus, not least on taking a tougher, more competitive approach to China. You have very interesting political fellowships now across the aisle. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Ted Cruz, Elizabeth Warren and Tom Cotton, people who really don't agree on much of anything, but they have found ways to make common cause on issues related to American competition with or policy toward China. But that's at a very high level of abstraction. I think if you really want to build a national security consensus with the public, whether it's for more cooperation with another country or it's for relentless confrontation with another country, you need to explain very clearly and level with the American public about the costs and trade-offs and benefits of that. And I think that's something that needs to be well anchored in domestic realities. And this, this what I call the strategic class hasn't figured out how to do that except at a relatively superficial level yet.
0: Hmm. So now we're at the end of the Trump administration. How much damage do you really think that it's done to America's position in the region? I mean, the, the new people who are coming in, they're all sensible multilateralists. They're all institutionalists. They're all about the restoration of diplomacy. Uh, but do you think that the Biden foreign policy team can recreate or reassert uh, a a role for america in asia that isn't just a guarantor of security that is also the standard setter that you wanted the more meaningful provider of public goods that you want it to be uh what are the strengths that you know the united states still has to build on in the region i mean i know you, you gave me a good litany of of uh some of the unchallenged strengths that the united states has that still make it you know to use a hackneyed phrase the the indispensable power but uh what 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 are the things that Americans can do now that China can't in the region
1: right well before i get to that i'd question your premise a little bit in two senses The first is if you think about the way I set up the evolution of change in Asia, I went back to the kind of 1997-98 Asian financial crisis. So that was the Clinton administration. Uh, And then the second bookend of that tumultuous decade that I talked about was 2008, which was the global financial crisis, which was at the end of the Bush administration transitioning to Obama. So I think a lot of what the United States is grappling with or has to grapple with in terms of structural change is a generational multi-administration and fundamentally bipartisan problem. Um, I don't think it's... It's necessarily a Trump phenomenon. The second thing is, I think there are elements of the Trump policy that have been quite welcome in Asia. Um, The Trump administration definitely took a tougher line toward China that was anchored in a notion of strategic competition. And Asian countries, in my experience, tend to think in terms of power balances and counterbalances. And so that more robust application of American counterpressure on a China that's become more assertive, including to its neighbors, India, Vietnam, Japan, Australia, I think is actually quite welcome. And You know, people are looking for competition without uh, haphazard confrontation, but Asians will be nervous if the new administration overcorrects in the other direction. Nobody wants to rewind the clock to 2014, 15, 16 either. They do want a more competitive approach. So I think that element of the Trump policy was welcome and will remain. I think
0: the- In some parts of Asia, for
1: sure. In many parts of Asia. I think the problem, as I said, is the sinification of everything which is to say the refraction of America's entire approach to Asia through the prism of the bilateral dynamic between the US and China.
0: I I mentioned
1: that aphorism attributed to Rich Armitage before. I mean, you know, you look at the way Pompeo or O'Brien or others um, talk about the region. um, It's very much Armitage upside down. Instead of getting China right by getting Asia right, they're making all relationships, initiatives, and policies in Asia really derivative of the American agenda with China. And as I said, that forces countries to fight the map. They got to live there. It forces them to fight economic gravity because of the role that China plays as a demand driver, but also within their economies. And so that isn't very realistic for, for them. And so I think the challenge the Biden people have is to convey to countries in the region, first, that they're not just proxies in some larger American fight with China. Second, to recalibrate between security and economics. That doesn't mean walking away from security reviews, security responsibilities, and the important things the U.S. has to do with allies and security partners in terms of deterrence of China in the Indo-Pacific. But as I said, it means getting the economic dimensions of this right. I would like to think the Biden people would figure out how to make the retail case to come back into the CPTPP. The U.S. will face a negotiating challenge because it will regard the current agreement as the floor. And some countries out in Asia will regard it as the ceiling. But... um,
0: exactly by that
1: i i mean that the united states will want to negotiate more concessions above and beyond the existing agreement as the price for coming back into it and for countries in the region that uh
0: had to make painful structural choices uh and politically fraught and difficult reforms we're talking about subsidies we're talking about environmental standards labor standards yeah they just
1: won't want to make a lot of changes to accommodate the Americans. they'll say look the region moved on without you you guys withdrew um so so that's a problem Um, But I I think, you know, uh, there is a case to be made around trade agreements. You just have to do it at the retail level. Um, I think beyond getting Asia right and figuring out how to balance between the security and economic pieces, uh, the United States has to sort out how to have a realistic and workable relationship with the China that is emerging. And the China that's emerging is one with which the United States is going to have a really much more competitive relationship That it had in the past, but notwithstanding, as I said, the security competition, the U.S. and China did find ways in the past to coordinate, even when they didn't cooperate, on scary transnational problems like public health or global economic stability that mattered to their publics. And they didn't do that because they were buddies or because they were in love or because they were naive waifs. They did it for selfish reasons. They had a self-interested case to make to deal with infectious disease or deal with economic and financial contagion and financial crises. I don't see that happening. And if you look at the history of the U.S.-China relationship, you know, Uh, The U.S. and China have collaborated on that stuff in the past, but it's unthinkable today. And so they need to rediscover some self-interested and selfish basis for coordination on the things that matter to their publics, because if they don't, it's a recipe for permanent instability, not just uh, in the region, but globally. The last thing is I I do think because the technology issue has become so central to U.S.-China competition, the United States does have to figure out how far it wants to go in terms of deintegrating its economy and its innovation system and its development of science, technology, education, and mathematics from China. Um, I hate the word decoupling because it implies that the United States and China are a couple. And when you're a couple, you can get divorced. But the United States and China are not, in fact, a couple because other economies and countries are going to get a vote on this. And if other economies want to develop co-innovation partnerships with China, then the United States is going to find potentially that it builds you know, a very large yard with a very high fence. But in its effort to attenuate China's progress ends up attenuating its own. And I think there are areas there's a, a straightforward national security case for reducing the exposure of U.S. entities of all kinds to sure. co-innovation with China. But there are other areas where there is a public benefit. Um, and they need to sort that out in a much more systematic way. And I don't think that's a conversation that we're having really in the United States right now.
0: But it's one that's more likely to happen, I think, now uh, with the Biden administration coming in, right? Right. So, Evan, do you think that there's apt to be more sort of departure from what we've seen under the Trump administration or more continuity with what we've seen, especially on on technology issues?
1: Actually, I think there's going to be quite a bit of continuity. And if there's anybody in Beijing that's expecting a wholesale reset... Um, that's the triumph of hope over experience. They're going to be very disappointed. And the reason goes back first to the structural factors that I talked about before. It's just more competitive. And I think there's a bipartisan consensus view around that. But the other thing is that the Trump administration is leaving uh, for its successor, a set of tools that may actually be surprisingly attractive to the Biden team. They've used a bunch of things. The Commerce Department's entity list, the use of uh, administrative arrangements to uh, make cooperation with certain Chinese companies toxic for U.S. investors, um, the extraterritorial application of U.S. export controls. Um, Those things may be very attractive to an administration that wants to... uh, have an explicitly competitive posture with China in the tech and data area. The difference is that the Biden people strike me as systematizers, institutionalizers, and multilateralists. And so they'll have the opportunity to use those in a more systematic and less ad hoc and confrontational kind of way. What I don't really know yet is whether they're going to use them purely punitively
0: or whether they're going
1: to use them in service to a larger, longer term and more enduring negotiating agenda. I'll just give you an example. I expect that they're going to reach out to the Europeans and the Japanese to try to talk about a coordinated approach to some of the grievances that those three parties share collectively with barriers to competition inside of China. Um, And they may actually act collectively to jointly withhold access to their markets. But do they do that purely punitively, or do they do that tied to a negotiating agenda in which the three of them try to push China to uh, offer concessions on competition and across and behind the border structural reforms that all three of those parties seek? If they do the latter, then it can really shape the environment around China in ways that has the potential to produce real change in a much more level playing field. If they don't, then yes, you'll have some decoupling and deintegration, but um, it it will— actually open up fissures over time. I think it'll be harder for the United States and Europeans to see eye to eye on everything because um, they're they're on the same page in the sense of sharing a sense of grievance, but there's not necessarily a coalition for collective action on every item on that competition agenda. So that's the challenge.
0: So what will change though? What what do you think they will repudiate from the Trump policy besides, of course, the, sort of the, the tone, the nasty grams, that sort of thing? Well, I
1: think there are two things that will probably happen very quickly. One is that the climate change issue will move front and center. Um, And there will be uh, people in the Biden administration who will see that as not just an opportunity to work with China, but an imperative, um, uh, both on the technology side, but also on the emissions control side. Um, So that issue will come back in a big way. Um, And the second is really uh, some of the restrictions that were put on exchanges of students and scholars. Those were done by the Trump administration, largely by executive action. Mm -hmm. And if you live by executive action, you can die by executive action in the sense that uh, things can be reversed, so I expect a lot of those visa-related policies to Full be rights, reversed. Visas in the, in the, things yeah, enough. Like well, just uh, restrictions on the ability of Chinese students, for instance, to study in certain STEM subjects here in the United States for for longer than a year or two. I, I expect those policies to be reversed. But I think the general zeitgeist of a more competitive approach is going to remain. Um, Eli Ratner, who's been an advisor to to President like Biden in the past, has a good line about this. He says. Um, The goal, in his view, should be competition without confrontation. And he's described recent policies as, again, in his view, confrontation without necessarily being competitive. I think that's actually a useful frame for putting on it. The question is whether... The new administration is prepared to make the kinds of investments, whether it's in education or it's in the investment climate here or it's in innovation and in American industry that really do uh, reflect a more competitive approach to America's standing in the world. Um, and that's what I mean by not just, you know, firing off nasty grams at Beijing, but taking what I view as a more substantively competitive rather than rhetorically competitive approach to that relationship. That's
0: what's nothing lacking. wrong with running faster and not wanting to trip the other guy i mean that's that 's uh what it comes down to for me yeah Evan Fagenbaum, thank you so much for taking the time uh, let 's move on now to recommendations uh, that was fantastic man thank you but first uh, a quick reminder that the best way to support the work that we 're doing with Seneca and with the other shows in our network is to subscribe to SubChina access to our newsletter if you aren 't already subscribing do it it's uh, it's amazing you'll you'll find that it's money very well spent. Uh, let's move on to recommendations. Evan, what do you have for this?
1: Well I got a I I got a movie actually for oh, you. Oh great, and great. This right. comes from it's a documentary, so don't get too excited. But <laughs> this is from my colleagues at the Miller Center at the University of Virginia, where I, I held an endowed chair last year and uh, am now a visiting fellow. Um, this is the repository of all the presidential oral histories. Uh, going back to the Kennedy administration. And Mm. they just made a terrific documentary that was shown on PBS, and it's available on Amazon Prime, called Statecraft. And it's a study of the Bush 41 administration, and its approach to German unification and the ending of the Cold War. Uh, Uh, The United States, in my view, has forgotten how to do statecraft. And we're at that moment in every four-year cycle where we Give ourselves a frontal lobotomy and forget our rich strategic history, and so we could do well, I think, to remember some of our history about how we manage big international problems in a competent and strategically foresighted way. That that team, uh, President Bush forty one. Defense Secretary Cheney, Secretary of State Baker, National Security Advisor Scowcroft, the people they had around them, Bob Blackwell, Condi Rice, Richard Haas, Philip Zellico. It's really a remarkable, Bob Zelik, remarkable team, uh, and really had a big impact on, uh, on the world. So at a time of strategic turbulence, the U.S. could learn a lot from that experience. So it's on Amazon Prime, and everybody should take a look at it, I think. And then cooking podcasts. There's some great cooking podcasts out there, on the like <laughs> Street, that I highly recommend as well.
0: You listen to the cooking podcasts. I, I have never, never listened to a cooking podcast. I, I, that's something I've just never thought to do. I always thought it was just such a visual medium. I should probably look at the videos, but.
1: No, no, no. Uh, there's, there's some great ones. There's one called Milk Street, which is Christopher Kimball, and it's like, uh, chef porn. He has, it's completely auditory, right? Because it's a podcast, so you have to listen to it. But it, they, he just has fantastic chefs come on. Marcus Samuelson was just on a few weeks ago, and they just really anchor their cooking in stories and in history and in the roots of how certain communities have evolved. It's particularly interesting on, on global cooking trends and, traditions and also on ethnic cooking here in the United States.
0: Oh well, I'll definitely check that out Milk Street oh, thanks that's a good one. I'm gonna recommend Kim Stanley Robinson's latest work of Cli-fi of uh, climate fiction. Uh, it's called the Ministry for the Future. Uh, it's about how our nations and our leaders and our institutions respond to the horror of a kind of you know near future uh, it it, it, start, it opens with a horrible heat wave in uh, northern India. Where and that takes the lives of millions, um, it's it's the kind of world that's described in um, the, the book *The Uninhabitable Earth* by David Wallace Wells. Uh, but it's really good, and it's not it's not entirely doom and gloom. It, it actually, uh, I'm not I've not finished it yet, but. Um, I should shout out, uh, I bought this book after listening to one of my favorite podcasts, which is Ezra Klein's podcast, where he interviewed the author, Kim Stanley Robinson, uh, who is a very well-known science fiction writer. He wrote the Mars Trilogy and also a book that I've recommended on the show before, which is a sort of alternative history called The Years of Salt and Rice, uh, which is about uh, a world history if the the, uh, Black Death, of the 14th century had killed say 95 percent of Europe. Uh, anyway, great books. Um, this one, Ministry of the Future, really enjoying it uh, and highly recommended. Um, Evan, thanks, thanks once again, man. That was terrific. Thanks uh, for
1: having me. It was a blast. Oh yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. And, uh, and we didn't have 14th. to do it in your apartment in Beijing this time. No, <laughs> it wasn't my apartment, man. I lived well, in whoever's nice apartment I was. <laughs> yeah, that was crap. It was yeah. a long time ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, man. It was great to talk to you. Thanks for having me. All right. Take care. The Seneca Podcast is powered by SupChina and is a proud part of the Seneca Network. Our show is produced by Kaiser Guo and Jeremy Goldcorn, with editing help by Jason McRonald. Drop us an email at Seneca at SupChina.com. Follow us on Twitter or on Facebook at, at News, And make sure to check out all the shows in the Seneca Network. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Take care.